All right, we are going to be in uh, Romans chapter 3 today. Uh, so if you want to find that in your scripture sheet or in your Bible, we will have the verses we'll look at on the screen as well. Uh, but the subject, we've been in a series on the book of Romans, uh, and we've covered all of chapter 2. We're moving on to chapter 3. But the subject and the focus of Paul's letter does not change at this point, does not change really until we get to Romans 3, verse 21. And I can't wait to get there. So we're going to continue today with some similar lines of thought as we've been in recent weeks. Romans 3, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. In his second epistle, the apostle Peter mentions the author of the book of Romans, Paul, and he calls him a beloved brother, but then he also, also says he, he teaches, this beloved brother Paul teaches in his letters many things hard to understand. And today's passage is maybe one of those things that he was thinking of. Uh, in it, the apostle carry on, carries on what seems to be an imagined conversation uh, with a Jewish antagonist, maybe a heckler who he is arguing with in a synagogue. And to understand it, we kind of have to enter that world of Paul's discourse or back and forth with this Jewish heckler, even, uh, and to understand it as well, not only enter the world, but even the mindset of the religious Jew, first century variety, uh, someone who is encountering the gospel through Paul. So let's call our imagined Jewish friend Eli, okay? Uh, at the end of chapter 2, Paul told Eli that his circumcision did not make him a true Jew. He told him that his Jewish heritage did not protect him from God's judgment and that his disobedience to the law of God left him in precisely the same jeopardy that a Gentile would be left in due to his or her disobedience. And Eli does not like hearing that. He's offended by it. It differs from what he was taught in his Sunday school or Saturday school. And so he shoots back in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew. How many of you have one of these? <laughs> Do we have a big one there, Deb, to show off? There we go. You have, you have one of these? Yeah. Uh, this is uh, pretty much standard equipment for life in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. It is, it is the giant eagle advantage 
card. And you know, at Giant Eagle and at GitGo gas stations, this card will get you discounts on overpriced gas and food items. <laughs> <laughs> so when I go to Giant Eagle uh, to seek out some eggs, uh, what does the computer lady ask me when I go to pay for my eggs? She says, please scan your Advantage card. And I scan it. And then uh, the computer voice says this, I, I love this, she says, your Advantage card has been accepted. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? How affirming. And sometimes when I'm feeling down, I'll just run by Giant Eagle to scan <laughs> my Advantage card just to hear her tell me that uh, I've been accepted. So I have an Advantage card. Interestingly, I brought mine in this morning for this illustration and realized I'd lost it. So this is Beth's, actually. Uh, <laughs> if you run into an Advantage card laying on the floor somewhere today, turn it into me and I'll get you a free ice cream cone out of the church <laughs> church's freezer. Um, but I have an Advantage card, and uh, I hope to have one again, at least. Uh, and if you don't have one, well, it stinks to be you. Uh, but me... I clearly have an advantage. Now, Eli figured he, too, had an advantage. He got his card, so to speak, uh, when he was eight days old, and it has been with him ever since that time. His teachers explained, and the scriptures confirmed, that he was a part of a special people who had obtained favor from the Almighty. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was a Jew, and when Paul says that, even still, Eli was in hot water with God because of his failure to keep the law. Eli pulls out his advantage card, and he says to Paul, oh yeah, what about this? <laughs> how, can, how can you, Paul, explain this? Eli knew that God made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. He saw clearly that the Lord had built his temple for and with a particular people group of which he, Eli, was a part. He saw that God had given them special laws. He saw that God had given them holy days, that God had bestowed graces upon them that the Gentiles did not have. So some of the best-known Jewish teachers taught that uh, disobedient Jews would miss out on certain blessings, but that none of them would perish eternally because they were, they are, the seed of Abraham. Now here's this crazy apostle telling Eli that his advantage card would not be accepted on the day of judgment. Come on, Paul. So Paul engages Eli's objection and carries on this imagined debate with him that clarifies some things relevant to ancient Jews and modern Americans. In doing so, the apostle makes four points that we want to discuss together today. The first of those is the qualified advantage. Paul says to Eli that his Jewishness is in fact a significant advantage. In chapter 9 of Romans, Paul will list several advantages, but here he mentions maybe the primary one. The Jews were given and had the oracles, the revelation, the written word of God. This was the traditional consensus understanding of what the Old Testament, that we call it, was. It was the very word of God. So growing up Gentile, you missed out on that. Now, we who grow, grew up in the United States or wherever as Christians, as evangelicals, as Bible lovers, we had the same privilege, didn't we? Uh, my family didn't read the Bible at home, but we read it at church. Even at school, we read 
the Bible at least a little bit. And I, like many of you, grew up with Christian privilege. Thank God for that. That is real. That is substantial. That is insufficient. <laughs> what? <laughs> real, substantial, and insufficient. In various places in life, you and I might have certain advantages depending on, uh, could be depending on our race or our family background or our educational opportunities, and those can be huge. But can we still make a mess of our lives? Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, absolutely. And we always do to some degree or another. Paul tells Eli that what counts are the choices you make, and you made some really bad ones. And I'm talking to you now. You made some really bad ones that dishonored God. Your advantages are real, but they are qualified advantages. Now, Paul is saying that being Jewish then is not enough. Now, not enough to what? Not enough to what? Not, not enough to compensate for the guilt of personal sin, of violating the holy law of God. Paul preached that individually each person, Jew and Gentile, must repent, must look to Christ to be saved. And the pious Jew is offended by this. In Acts 21, they actually tried to kill Paul for speaking this word. They stirred up hostility against him and accused him. And they said this, Acts 21, 28, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law. So that was the spin that they were putting on Paul's preaching. Paul says that Jews are sinners needing to repent. He's against us. He's against the word of God. Wow. Curiously, soon after I came to North Park Church, I had a conversation with a, a precious brother in this church who told me that as he understood things, Jewish people did not need to be born again. The born again thing was only a requirement for Gentiles. And I, I found this a rather strange perspective, and I pointed out to him that when Jesus in John 3 said that you must be born again, he was speaking to Nicodemus, who happened to be a, a Jew. Why, yes, there's no difference on this point. Jew or Gentile, you must be born again. So, so many get set up for disillusionment by bad teaching. Prosperity preachers in these days tell folks that if they do the Christian life right, they'll be running over with health and wealth, but God never promises that. Some churches say that if you let them baptize you or if you just check the Christian box when you enter the hospital, well, uh, it, is, it, it, it is well with your soul. God would be unfaithful to his word not to give you entrance into his rest. But no way. No way. Many try to hold God to promises God never actually made. Just as God never told ancient Jews that they were free to sin with impunity because Ancestry.com links them back to Father Abraham, they had the advantage card. Yes, they did. But there were limits to the advantage. Paul says to Timothy that he had advantages as a Jew, 2 Timothy 3.15. From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's a, that's a big advantage. But notice that the scriptures, what's it say? They're able to give you the wisdom leading to salvation, but it does not happen automatically. You may have the advantage of uh, having a treadmill in your basement, but if you don't turn it on 
and get on it and get some exercise, the advantage is nullified. And, and who's to blame for that? <laughs> Look at our fourth verse again. May it never be. Meganoito. May rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That last part is a quote from David's great prayer of repentance after his adultery with Bathsheba that he prays back in the Psalms. Paul points us back to David as an example. Good example. David uh, was a Jew. David had received promises from God, yet when David sinned grievously in the Bathsheba case, he faced some stiff consequences. And what did David say about God and about his justice? He says, whatever you do, Lord, that is right. Now look at verse 4 again. I'm going to give it to you in the New Living Translation. You will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. <laughs> God always does. Okay? An axiom of theology is that whatever God says is true, whatever God does is right. Whatever he says is true, whatever he does is right. David saw that the only, that the only unfaithfulness was his, and he did not expect his Jewishness, he did not expect his kingliness to spare him. So, all right, let's move on to our second observation from our text. This is the self-justifying nonsense of Eli. It's our imaginary Jewish friend. Uh, Eli represents the sinner who chooses self-delusion over repentance. You know that's a choice? Lots of people make it. He chose self-delusion over repentance. And this time I read from the New Living Translation again, which may be easier to follow, verse 5. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? Oh, what an argument. Uh, sin leads us to think and say some crazy stuff. I mean, this is really pretty bad. The imagined argument is, uh, is one that utilizes the logic or the illogic of the ends justifies the means. And the argument is that my badness highlights God's goodness. Thus, he is glorified <laughs> as a result of my badness. And I'm off the hook as a result. I mean, if God judges me, Think about this. If God judges me, his righteous justice will be on display. If God forgives me, his great mercy will be on display. In any case, God is the winner. And I, in all my badness, made a contribution to his glory. Therefore, if I get punished, it would be for making God look really good, which is our ultimate aim anyway. Right? <laughs> no, 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 no. This is just a sample of the insanity that comes from sinners desperate to find an excuse. We see it every day. Eli is thinking that his sin results in praise for God, and he should, if anything, be rewarded. I remember a meeting of Presbytery some years back. 
when a middle-aged fellow pastor stood before the assembled group of elders and pastors to confess his sin. He had been found guilty of physically abusing his wife, hitting her with some regularity in their marriage. And he was standing before us to make his confession. Now, if that pastor was thinking like Eli, he might have said this to his fellow elders. He might have said, brothers, consider how my conduct makes you look better. <laughs> Your church can say, oh, Pastor Jim is really boring, but at least he's nice. Or your wife can say, my husband uh, isn't around very much, but at least he doesn't hit me like that pastor does his wife. You should thank me, not discipline me. You follow that logic? <laughs> By this logic, the heroes of faith would include Judas, Iscariot, Herod, Pontius Pilate. Their sin, hey, it turned out to promote God's purposes, didn't it? So condemnation of them would be unfair. These folks tie a logical knot that makes your head spin, but provides them with apparently some measure of comfort and cover. So watch yourself lest you fall into this temptation clearly from hell. Repentance is God's way, not excuses. Watch yourself for the self-justifying nonsense that the devil will gladly provide for you. Third major observation from this passage is that we must remember the concept of the true Jew. We dealt with that last week. Verses 28 and 29 said he is not a Jew just because you are not a Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. Romans 9 verse 6 they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And both of those passages tell us that what really counts is not biological descent from Abraham, but spiritual descent. When we get to Romans 4, we will read that the real heirs of Abraham and his covenant are those who, like Abraham, put their faith in the Lord, put their faith in his word. Now, Jews today, and by that I mean the ethnic or biological Jews, some share Abraham's faith, but most do not. Most who are Jewish ethnically are irreligious. The religious ones, conservative and reformed Jews, don't believe the Old Testament to be God's word anymore. The Orthodox Jews who do take it seriously tend to bury it under mounds of extra tradition and legalism. The uh, completed Jew who has believed the word, who has embraced the Messiah, Jesus is, is fairly rare in our day, but Paul, the consummate Pharisee, once converted, opens up the Abrahamic covenant with all of its promises and blessings to us Gentiles, who are now indeed the true Jews who walk in the faith of Father Abraham. So we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in ceremony. We put no confidence in family connections or in rule keeping. Our boast is in Jesus, the righteous heir of Abraham's promise. So turn to your neighbor and say, Shalom and Mazel Tov. Go ahead. <laughs> Having seen again the teaching about a true Jew, we finish today by focusing on our true God. Yes, now this is a refreshing change. 
enough with all the corrupt humanity we've been talking about. We have a perfect, a holy, and a beautiful Lord. Paul says the a notion that God somehow broke his word is ludicrous. It is worthy of condemnation. Ours is the God of truth. Again, verse 4, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Let God be true, though every man a liar. The veracity of God is under examination. Eli thinks that maybe, maybe God is at fault here. He made promises to the Jews. Now, and Paul says some of the Jews will be condemned, and Eli suggests that, well, God is breaking his promise. That's one angle on the situation. But the apostle rejects it out of hand. God made a promise for sure. We can't doubt that. But here are a couple of ways to look at it. First, the promise came with conditions, conditions which the Jewish people as a whole and many individual Jews violated, spat upon, repeatedly broke. In Malachi, we read that God hates divorce. But Jeremiah says he actually files for divorce from Israel because of their many spiritual adulteries. One angle here is that God was and is faithful, but his bride was not, and he has grounds for judgment upon his privileged people who made vows to him and broke them repeatedly and extensively. That's one angle that preserves God's veracity. Another is that God's promises were to the spiritual children, not the physical children of Abraham. Well, this would be interpreting the Old Testament apostolically. This is the angle Paul and the other apostles actually take, as we have seen. The doctrine of the true Jew preserves our confidence in a true God. Let me end with this. Let God be true. That is, trust him, even if every single human takes the other side. We live in a day when almost anyone can offer their opinion about every subject imaginable, right? Suppose you posted on Twitter, and just as an aside, it's a good idea for you as a representative of Jesus to be very discerning, use great discretion. Uh, in your choices about what to post on Twitter and Instagram and whatever else your social media uh, provides for you out there. But you post something on Twitter, and 5,000 people respond with disagreement, many of them with contempt, and no one sides with you. I hear this is very traumatic. <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine, but that's what some tell me. So if you posted that the Pirates are going to win the World Series, I understand their response. But if you posted something that you got from the Word of God, if you posted something that represents His mind, His values, His truth, well, what is 5,000 Twitter followers compared to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. Here's a line we've heard in recent years. You people, you troglodyte Christians who say that same-sex marriage is not good, who, who say that God made them only male and female. You, you people, you're on the wrong side of history. That's what they say. I find that you're on the wrong side of history. I find this an odd argument. 
Well, it's not an argument. It's just kind of a threat, I guess. But um, think about it. First of all, who knows where history is heading? And secondly, who cares? Why should I? I'm more interested in being on the right side of eternity. You see, I believe in that. There's a judgment day ahead when God has spoken the opinions of the bosses at YouTube or even in Washington, D.C. Those opinions carry very little weight. The only fact checker that matters is seated on the throne in heaven. And you can tell me how outnumbered I am as if I'm supposed to tremble before the mob, but no, my mind, it's made up, and I have decided that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, that will endure forever. And six billion humans can lie, but the one true God, never. As Martin Luther said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. But thankfully, when we stand on the Word, we stand with the God who is truth. And in a world drowning in lies, the true Jew stands with the true God. Will you? If you live much longer, you'll have some serious opportunities to back your commitment to stand with the living God, who is true, though every man become a liar. Let's pray. <laughs> Gracious Lord, we don't understand everything Paul is saying here exactly, but we thank you, Lord, for what we see, the confirmation of your veracity and integrity and truthfulness, and the continued depiction of humanity and all of our rot and all of our corruption Lord, we see the folly that the enemy puts into our minds that justifies our lack of repentance. Forgive us for ever going there. Forgive us, Lord, for pointing to phony advantages that we think we have because of our upbringing or our race or our family heritage or whatever it may be, or even our own deeds. God, may our boast be only in Jesus. And we thank you for him. We flee to Jesus now. We look to him, gracious Savior. Would you show yourself to us? We recognize, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless we are born again, we cannot see your kingdom. So grant us that rebirth that we would see the realities all around us that impinge upon our lives and prepare us for judgment. May we spend this day living in the light of eternity and in the light of the judgment to come and run to Christ, and look to Him, who alone is righteous. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.